Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Last Friday was the anniversary of the Red Ribbon Rebellion. I talked with Jim Evans from the Bendigo Historical Society about the annual reenactment, and then you'll hear a discussion I had with Luke Martin and Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall Council about the legacy of the rebellion and what we can learn from it. Uh, I'm Jim Evans, president of the Bendigo Historical Society. We promote history, especially the history of Bendigo. Over the years, since about 1998, we've been uh, doing reenactments of the Red Ribbon Rebellion. Uh, there was a very big reenactment and to coincide with the discovery of gold in Bendigo, which was in 2001. And since then, we've been having reenactments. And uh, the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years, we've had school children have been part of that reenactment. They've been dressed up as, uh, as uh, diggers, as uh, miners, uh, and, and as police, <laughs> as well as part of that reenactment. We were due to have one, but yes. because of COVID, uh, we had to cancel that one. In Bendigo at that time, 1853, there was a, uh, well, he was a China painter called William Dexter. Now, William Dexter has some paintings actually in the Bendigo Art Gallery, mm. still live paintings. But he suggested, because he, he loved things French, he suggested as in the French flag, liberty, equality, fraternity. Mm. The red is for fraternity, brotherhood of man, sisterhood of woman, women, <laughs> whatever. Because of the red in that, he suggested that this would be used as a protest against the gold licence fee that imposed by a, a non-elected government. They, they weren't, uh, there was the governor and some other uh, landowners and so on were part of the government. So, and they were not elected, so they imposed the fee. Now you had to pay that whether you were got whether you mined gold or not. So shopkeepers, everyone in Bendigo had to pay that gold licence fee of thirty shillings a month. Wow! You found gold or not? So it upset everybody, particularly the way it was collected. You had people, uh, uh, many of whom were sort of ex-convicts from Tasmania, acting as police uh, on, and they went round being pretty pretty rough in their methods of checking whether a miner had a gold license. You have to carry this bit of paper, the license with you at all times, whether you're down the shaft or up, up on top of the surface there. So that, that was the other thing that upset. So the miners uh, got together and produced this, what's called the miners petition. Thousands of miners uh, and shopkeepers and so on uh, signed that petition. Yeah, I read that it was like 30, 30 metres long or something. Yes, that's right. Yeah, you've got it. Yeah. <laughs> we have, we have, historically only got a copy of that. Wow. So you because it's in great sheets. But uh, anyway, it's in our collection. And that was delivered to Governor Latrobe and he rejected it. So that was the spark to set up these mass uh, meetings. Uh, over 10,000 miners gathered on. Uh, what we call Hospital Hill, where the first hospital was built. So that's where the miners, in pouring rain, and they elected certain delegates to go and see the commissioners, Commissioner Wright from Castlemaine 
and Commissioner, the young Commissioner Panton, 21-year-old, at a spot in Rosalind Park uh, behind the trades hall. That's the spot where they met the commissioners and offered them a small amount for the September licence. Uh, the, the commissioner said, no, we can't accept that. You've got to pay 30 shillings a month for a licence. So, uh, but they didn't collect licences in September. So in effect, the diggers won on that occasion. This was a peaceful protest and uh, the miners wore red ribbons and they, they uh, also had a, a banner designed by that man who suggested the red ribbon, William Dexter, mm. which had uh, the, uh, the pick and shovel uh, symbolising the miners, yes. scales of justice, uh, the ancient Roman symbol of the uh, the bundle of sticks tied close together, indicating unity, mm. and uh, and the emu and kangaroo was representing Australia. They were on this uh, on the symbols on this flag with a red background, scarlet background, and that was designed by William. So those banners are the ones, apart from the flags of, of other nations, we carry on the reenactment. They're the ones that are carried as well. So there you go. Mm. What is the significance of this? Why why should we keep on reenacting well, it? Well, if, and... if you're interested in democracy, and as you no doubt know, democracy is uh, receiving quite a battering. Uh, authoritarian governments are, are sort of snubbing their noses at democratic uh, action and protests and so on. Uh, I think it's important that people remind that uh, in a, in Australia in Bendigo we had this peaceful democratic protest against the. Uh, uh, arbitrary governments and people and, and a fee that was uh, not justified at, at whatsoever. You're listening to Stick Together. Oh, it's the best. It's the 168th anniversary of the Red Ribbon Rebellion um, in a series of events that led to the Eureka Stockade. Um, but we consider that uh, the Bendigo event to be one of the most important events in the series of events. It's where organised labour really developed and, and grew. And we've seen um, the anti-licence movement really progress. Uh, that's where the, the monster petition was drawn up um, with over 15,000 signatures on it. So they selected delegations to, to actually travel to Melbourne to, to talk to the, the governor directly. Um, so it's, it's a really significant time in, in the series of events that occurred. Yeah, and there were people from all over the world uh, who had come to the goldfields and, mm. yeah, all kind of joined in together uh, in this instance. Can you tell me any stories about some of the people who were involved? Well, it's interesting. This was a multicultural melting pot. Uh, we had Germans who fought in the German Revolution of the 1840s. They fought alongside the likes of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, and obviously they fled uh, Germany because of political and religious persecution after. They had a very big influence here as well. We had a lot of French at the time, we had Italians, um, and no doubt probably Spanish there. They, so you had a lot just from Europe, America as well. We had Americans here. And also we've had from the UK, obviously, we've had the English Chartists, we had Irish rebels here. You had actually uh, miners from Wales as well, and Cornwall, and they, they led some of the early strikes there in the UK, actually interesting, a red flag, the first red flag ever flown was in Wales, which when copper miners on a strike, they had a white flag dipped it in uh, cow's blood and that represented the red flag of, of the workers. And interesting, we did have some Chinese at the time. A lot of them came in the mining gold after the re uh, respective rebellion, especially after Eureka, there was a lot more influx 
within there. But a lot of the early Chinese were developing the market gardens and kitchens, uh, et cetera. And what they actually provided was support services. But a lot of them fought in the Boxer rebellions against uh, British imperialism in back in China. So they were fighting for their own homeland. They obviously they had to flee as well. I mean, imagine it just happened if that all united together. That would have been one hell of an army. I also read that there were a couple of women who signed the petition. Gold was actually first discovered in Bendigo Creek by a couple of women. They, they went and attended a, um, a gold panning session and just had to see how it was done. And when they got back to Bendigo, they went down to the creek and had a, had a go. And um, before too long, their pockets were <laughs> overflowing with gold. Um, and they were, they were fearful at the time because they weren't supposed to be doing it. Um, so mm. um, it's actually discovered here in Bendigo by, by some women. So. Hmm. I wonder what happened after that. Did they, what, do you know what happened to them? Well, I, I believe that their husbands took some credit. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Uh, Victoria became a, a new colony in 1850 and, and Governor Latrobe had uh, set up this new society for aristocrats. And, and back then, the, uh, the, the squatocracy, the, the squatters of the land that sort of just used the land for their own purposes, uh, that were given land rights eventually under, under the squatters' rights. It was, a, it was a class of people that required a, a number of workers. And this whole thing about um, people going to the, to the gold fields to, to look for gold, the workers left uh, in droves from the, from the main city centres uh, and the government of Trobe then tried to introduce legislation to bring them all back, try and you know, uh, disincentivise them to go up to the gold fields to, to look for gold. It didn't work. Like there, were, there was so much gold around that they didn't care. Uh, you know, they were just, there was even times where they were offering um, wages at uh, you know, 10 times the, the, the wage like to try and get people back on the ships, for example. It just didn't work. There was, there was more gold out there for people to just find that working for somebody was just no longer an attractive option. So, mm. And, mm. and this is why it, it, it just turned so ugly on the gold fields, um, the, the troopers and the, uh, and the and the, the traps that known back then hunted people. Uh, they, they would go out license hunting or digger hunting uh, to, to find anyone who didn't have a license. And they would be dragged off to the logs and chained to the logs in, in horrific conditions. Uh, it could be blazing hot sun in the summertime or freezing cold nights. And they were just chained there for days and, and, and charged without trial uh, and, and forced to pay a fee of five pounds was just absolutely ludicrous. Yeah, and it was a brutal regime how that was enforced. And obviously the conditions, a lot of the miners and their families and, and everyone and in the community at large had to live under at the time. I mean, there was no health system. There was no clean running water. I mean, the sanitation was, well, you could just mention it, it was horrendous. And it was obviously diseases and viruses can be rife. I mean, a single little cut can kill you through infect infection. But then having to, do, having to deal with such a brutal uh, penal colonial system there uh, and it was imposed on it was basically a military martial law style system. And this was just a powder keg um, situation ready to happen. I mean, well, these workers have deserted the landed gentry or the squatocracy. Their, their pay was so low. I mean, they'd be lucky if they could survive there alone. It was nothing. It was slave labour, basically. Um, so the wages they did receive was pretty much poor next to nothing. And then you know, they were working long, extensive hours on properties and that. So when the discovery of gold, of course, they would, would like any worker would go and want to uh, improve their situation and saw an advantage to improve their situation. 
Um, and we also too, there's another side of this. When you look at it, when they landed gentry, all the squatocracy, top military brass, who decided to claim all the land for themselves, um, and that you could actually see this is there was the process of stealing land from the first people in the first place. That was the process. The squatter goes lives on the land, puts a big claim on it. And then the governor goes, oh, yes, but because he's a special close friend of the governor, it could be top military brass. Yep, we granted un and, and recognised under colonial law and British uh, and British crown law. And back to it's got so many similarities now what's happening with Israel-Palestine at the moment in the struggle of Palestinian people. Exactly the same thing. And, that are, and, so, and that struggle over there and, and the struggle here is still continuing on to this day against that. And how much they can just think they can come in on someone else's land and you know, live on it and then claim it and occupy it and do it, uh, whatever, backed up by, by military power while they're at it. And that's what they, and that's why you can see the similarities happening today. So you can see, as said, the powder keg situation happening across the, uh, across the board here. I just wanted to point out as well, though, that a lot of people didn't find gold um and yeah i'm sure there are a lot of people that did succeed but yeah a lot of people like my family uh didn't find gold so they ended up going um back to blacksmithing can you tell me a bit about the legacy of this movement because that was at a very early stage before bendigo had become developed back then um bendigo was just all bushland and, and mm. it was very little here, but the population of Bendigo grew so fast. Like within a year, you know, they'd, they'd see people weekly coming in. You know, there'd be 800. There'd be the next week there'd be 2,000. The week after that'd be 5,000. And eventually, within a year, there was over 25,000 people on the on the gold fields. Uh, and that was in 1853 when when the rebellion happened. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that brought in obviously the need for uh, for other other work other types of labor there was schools being set up there was um hotels being set up there was planning buildings that went up that's so one of the oldest buildings in bendigo is just down the road from us here is actually an original planning building uh, to, to plan the city and to see the, the the streetscape and the landscape of bendigo now it's 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 like stepping back into the 80s yeah <laughs> so, yeah. And interesting, some of those people, like you correctly said, a lot of the workers that didn't find gold went back to their uh, original occupations, such as uh, blacks, blacksmithing was a, such a sought-after trade uh, back then. They had, so they would have played a, a big support role with the rest of the miners, you know, from anything making from mining equipment through to agricultural equipment, pretty much anything. Mm. And it's interesting to note, too, that those other trades, because they were on a gold field, they were required to hold a license as well. So as you said before about the um, people not actually seeking gold, they still had to have their license. And if they didn't have one, off to the logs they were dragged, you know, mm. they, were, they were persecuted for not having a license, even though they weren't looking for gold. Mm. It was really a, a, like they were building the rebellion themselves. Like they, yes. They, <laughs> so they, they made it happen, you know. Mm. This is why everybody come together. And, yes, and, and on the actual day of the, of the rebellion, it wasn't just the miners. It was everybody, and everybody wore those red ribbons in show of solidarity. Like red ribbon was actually uh, become such a sought after uh, commodity on the gold fields, it actually sold out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> was, couldn't buy it anywhere because everybody was wearing it around their arms and around their hats. And yeah, nice. Yeah, it was, and it was everybody. It really was. Yeah. <laughs>
You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. How did the labour movement kind of come out of the rebellions and, um, yeah, people standing up for their rights on the goldfields? Well, a lot of those people that were involved in the, um, in the Red Room Rebellion actually then go, went on to become members of parliament. Um, you had uh, Robert Pumphandle Benson, um, one of the chief antagonisers of the uh, Red Room Rebellion, was elected to parliament in 1855. Uh, a more noteworthy one was Robert Clark, um, who was member of Legislative Assembly. Um, Robert Clark was there just to represent the workers and, in, in parliament, and he actually was the first to legislate the eight-hour miners' day, mm. uh, which was uh, repealed sometime later, but mm. yeah, it was there for the working class, and and these people were um they were they were selected by the people, and that, that was um it was really a changing point in the way democracy was shaped here in, in Australia and in Victoria, um, and it was the working class with their own representatives. You see, I know, I know the colonial law. Only the only people that really had a say or a vote were landed uh, the squatocracy top military brass, or if you're extremely wealthy. Most of the times, if you happen to be a blacksmith, for example, or yeah, or even a miner or anyone else or a farm labourer, you didn't have a you didn't have a say in anything. Our the our the whole operation ran nothing. You didn't make you weren't involved in anything. You were just treated as as basically you know a third rate citizen or whatever. It's just um you're part of you know, you're part of the scenery. Sorry, you're enough, and and that's, that's what people were treated like. Uh, I think it's what important that came out of this was the call for universal suffrage. You know the right to uh, have a say um, and, and be represented. Fa- I guess yeah, yeah. Be represented because when when this tax uh, was imposed on everyone at an extraordinarily high price. I mean, three pounds might sound much, but that was a huge amount of income back in that day. They didn't have a say in that, so yeah, well, it's like they basically came under the saying no taxation without representation. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So the Red Ribbon Rebellion played a very important role in establishing, I mean, perfect by means, but actually have some form of parliamentary uh, representation, uh, which we never had before. And the thing is, like, Governor Latrobe, with his plans to um, to have this class system where it's the uh, aristocracy with the, the top of the class and, and all those um, miners that were exiting the, the main capital uh, in search of gold were all the workers that wanted to st- have stick around. Like the fact that he was pushed back many, many times by the people, it just paved that way for us to actually have some sort of a say in, in democratic society today. So yeah, they couldn't they couldn't uh, ignore us. We we're too big, we we're too well organized. Mm. <laughs> they had to How... give us some sort of a say eventually. You know? Yes. How can we get back to that point, do you think? Because it seems to have been eroded quite a lot yeah, over yeah. time. And that's what we find. Um, this this um, part of history has sort of been sort of a little bit buried. You know, we need to get it out, drag it out, dust it off. And that's why we are planning to take this event that we're supposed to have today and repeat that every year. To, it's a reminder of the importance of uh, People fighting for a common cause and, and coming together. Yeah, mm. um, it was it was said by one of those um, miners back way back then. He put a notice out and he, he 
calling on people to stand and fight against the atrocious conditions that they were put under by uh, Governor Latrobe and the, uh, the colonial soldiers. He actually stated, you know, there's power in union, you know, and, mm. and there really is, and that's what we have to keep reminding people, and that's how we, mm. that's how we change things, that's how the people have a suffering. I think it's quite important to get back and tap into that spirit of those rebellion days. Look, I mean, reality is we do have a revolutionary spirit here in Australia. That rebellion period of the 1850s is part of that. Like, like with the same, um, uh, throughout the struggles ever since there was that um, revolutionary spirit and I think you know we've had an anti-colonial struggle by the by the first people here still continuing this day right through to um right through all these other struggles and we certainly we've got to tap back into the spirit if you want to know the true spirit of Australia that was it um and, and it's got to be shown that unity action for unity be able to achieve something I remember hearing and saying years ago, uh, referring to the old BLF, it says when we're ordinary workers organise, they're capable of extraordinary things. And I think that's what we now need to um, bring forward now. It can be done. If you want change, we need to band united again. That means joining a union, turning it back into a fighting organisation, but also at the same time, one step further, bring the community in. Everything else, we do need to uh, look, look at taking matters back into our own hands because it's certainly relying on the current system at the moment is won't be working anymore. Um, no matter what we think about the Australian constitution now or thinks it's not, action's gonna happen through the people, not through not through not opening the way for the greatest prime minister to come a long way. Yeah, it really does seem that these days they're gone back to treating people not like people, <laughs> just treating each other like humans would be nice and, and having a bit of understanding of what people are going through. And I think that's reflected in what you've said about what happened back then, but it, it seems like that's what's happening today as well. Yeah, I feel like they're trying to return to the old masters and servants ways. You know, mm. it was the masters and then there was everybody else that served the masters. You know? I really yeah. don't want to turn to that, but I think that's what they're pushing for, <laughs> that class war, you know, the, the haves and have-nots. Mm. And I think what's going to determine any struggle, um, for example, like a wages condition, so, uh, issue. What determines wages and conditions? It's the, it's the struggle between two classes, labour and capital, and the relative strength between those two. If capital's got the upper hand, they're much more organised or in a better position of strength, they'll determine the outcome. But if workers or labour is in a much better position, in a strong position, they'll determine the outcome. And I think this is something that, um, it's a painful lesson to learn. If we're not organised, this is the serious outcome. We're in a weakened position at the moment. This is what the outcome's going to be. But if we prepare to organise and prepare to have a go and have a crack, then the outcome could be totally different and different for the better as well, not for not, not making it matter worse. I think that's mm. got to get back into people's minds again. It's going to take a lot of education that because a lot of people are feeling um, powerless. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of pessimism out there. Um, I don't know if it's just part of the you know, society we live under, but a lot of pessimism out there and, and learners like no hope. And I said, well, no, there is hope. You can do this. But other people in other countries are already doing it, you know, mm. and moving quiet, you know, we can have a good look at ourselves and think, well, we can achieve this. Mm. Yeah, and, I mean, the rebellion shows we can do it. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, and that's for right. society to change, it has to be from the masses of people. Mm. Yeah, and there's this issue today where people who are, like, true union believers and, and, and supporters of the unions, they say, oh, you know, the unions are great. We believe that they're really important. They um, give the workers their rights and their good work conditions. But then there's this issue with relevance that these people that 
even though they're true believers of, of unions, think, oh, but I don't believe that the union can do anything for me. If I need to have an argument with my employer, I'm quite capable of doing that and I'll deal with it when I have a problem. Well, you know, there's this, there's this thing that sometimes things have got to get worse before they get better, but how yeah. much worse to get, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, we need to stick together. We need these people who are strong, true union believers to actually stand up and, and show some solidarity with the rest of the movement. And, mm. you know, the, the more people we have involved in our movement, the stronger we are and the more we can do. And people want to see unions have some real change in politics and be drivers of good legislation that help the working classes. It's only going to happen when people actually join and actually become part of that movement. Yeah, exactly. And I think people will understand that they, they've got certain rights they don't, they're probably not aware of either. Um, and mm. that wasn't given uh, because someone felt good one day and so Yeah. <laughs> it was um, that was they were hard hard fought for, and a lot of people don't know their rights either, uh, even yep. even out itself. But uh, I said it would be good if you know unions have got to be part of it as well, and then, and then high forms of struggle like organisations like community organising a whole lot. But if we want societal change, it's not going to happen as we're, we're currently going at the moment. It's just going to be worse and worse. Do you think that this is also part of neoliberalism, like we're not encouraged to take care of each other anymore? Well, 40 years of consistent neoliberal policies has obviously decimated a lot of communities, especially in regional mm. uh, centres and provincial cities. And that. We've seen large-scale industries shut down, like good-paying union jobs shut down, sent offshore, wherever. And what, what are we left with? This idea of free market and all that. Well, there's nothing free about it at all. Mm. Um, I mean, on free competition, we have to be more competitive. Why? Why can't we be cooperative? You know, why can't we cooperate with other nations and areas to build up a win-win situation where everyone benefits? I mean, it, it, the whole thing is what we've seen the, the last 40 years and consistent eroding of even basic stuff to, for our survival. What we see is crime, drug and alcohol abuse escalating, uh, domestic violence, breakdown of families, the community. And then wonder why a lot of these towns, a lot of young people do so leave to try and uh, source somewhere else. And... It, it just basically, and all this wealth concentrated further and further into the capital and to concentrate in fewer hands. And this, this is the end result. And what we're seeing about it, with the well-being of, of the general population is not taken into consideration at all. Babylon system is the vampire. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Jim Evans from the Bendigo Historical Society and Luke Martin and Dave Fox from Bendigo Trades Hall Council for taking the time to speak with us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03-9419-8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time. <laughs>